something I haven't done before, and that's something that Paul told Timothy to do, is that's to devote himself to the public reading of God's word and exhortation and teaching. What I want you to do with, for, with me is to turn to, to the first John, the, the epistle of First John, open up your Bibles to that. I'm going to read a great portion of that. It's not a long letter. I'm not going to read all of it, but a lot of it this morning. It takes a few minutes, which is really what is to be done. It's been done in the early church. You know, the letters were written and read as a letter uh, in one setting. So turn with me there. Follow along with me in your Bible as I read. This interpretation and this, and this kind of an opening up for us the Gospel of John, and particularly this section of the final discourse, or the upper room discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples. And as you do, pray that God will let you see the connections and be able to be reminded and, and remembering those things that we have read and talked about in, in the past as we see God bringing his word together, not that... These Bible books or these chapters or these writers have just taken things from a, a silo perspective or just they have tunnel vision, but how they look at this as an encompassing picture of redemptive history, of who Jesus is. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands... Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, has his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our, ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you, you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you, have had from the, you heard that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him. And in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says, in his, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in, this, is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is, in, is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children is the last hour. And as we have heard that, the, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that is made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as, he is anointed, as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will, we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we know we know, excuse me, because we love the brothers. Whatever does, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, he does not, he, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are the truth, and we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. 
And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, whichever, which you have heard from was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is greater in you is, is, greater, uh, he is, in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. They speak from the world, and their world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God. Excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God has made, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that, he, that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he, is, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother, whom he has, uh, seen, can, whom he has seen cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have, come, we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? That Jesus is the Son of God. Do you see how this has now been the commentary for us for this discourse? The repeated comments, the repeated understanding of abiding and loving and doctrine and loving and morality and purity and holiness. All of these things that Jesus has been talking to these disciples in this intimate setting... John has expounded for us, for his people who are being persecuted and being told that there are people, and that's not these people he's writing to, are believers. That there is this higher knowledge, these people who have a belief that there are those people who are only anointed and enlightened by God, and not everybody is, and, and, and John is saying, oh, my little flock, don't be, don't be dismayed. Don't be confused. You know the truth. You see how many times he said in there, you know, you know, you know, you know. It's trying to build confidence for them. And that's what we're trying to do here is to build our confidence. And Jesus is doing that for the disciples in this upper room. 
You notice within that context of 1 John and in this upper room discourse, it's all about relationship, is it not? It's a relationship with Jesus. It's a relationship with the truth. It's a relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's a relationship with God the Father. It's a relationship with one another. He says, I am the vine, and the Father's the vine, branch, uh, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is, it, he, it is he that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, those, that word of dwelling, a relational word, a, a place of, of remaining in. And how does he do that? We saw last week. By understanding God's word, by knowing God's word, by obeying God, by praying. All of these different um, exercises and disciplines doesn't guarantee, but is a result of and a consequence of the Holy Spirit living within us. And that we understand the truth. It's not that there's a list, as I said last week, you know, if you, if you pray and you obey, you know, you can't go wrong. God's going to have to love you. And that's not the case. He is saying, you, you already abide in me. You are already clean because I am going to clean you. I have a relationship with you. He says, remember, everything that you do, it's because of my relationship with you. Everything that happens is because of my relationship with you. So rest in that. He says, remember, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Which means that he gives us assurance to know if he's called us, if he's chosen us, that he will carry us because he's God. He's going to take us to the very end, regardless of what they're going to face. And this is what he's going to tell them, because he says to them, you are my friends. Now, my relationship to you means everything. And I have, you are my friends. But now he explains what it means to be a friend of Jesus. Now, these aren't the most encouraging words in the world that you would tell young, fledgling believers. <laughs> the world's going to hate you. <laughs> Verse 18, if the world hates you, that's a foregone conclusion. The world is going to hate you. And know that it has hated me before it ever hated you. And notice these encouraging words. Remember, he says, you're going to be persecuted, and, 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 and they're going to, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. The world's hated me. It's going to hate you. Sign me up, Jesus. This sounds like a great religion. This sounds like a great relationship. Jesus is concerned about them. He is telling them the truth. Now, he says, I got more to tell you. And we'll read that, that he says, I got more to tell you. You can't handle everything. But Jesus is giving them the basics. And this is what many people who come to know Jesus are told that, you know, your life is going to be so different. Your life is going to be so glorious that everything's going to change when Jesus comes to your life. And Jesus is telling them the truth. Yes, everything does change. Your life is turned upside down. It is not about what people are preaching about in one very prominent church. It is about this, this uh, double portion that God's promising for his people about prosperity for the year of 2015. It ain't nothing about that because if the world hates you, doesn't sound like that's very prosperous to me, does it? And so you can build churches up. Why don't you go to places where people are telling you that you're going to be prosperous because you, that's what God promises you. Don't procrastinate. Don't be disappointed. Don't be frustrated. Just believe you're a child of God that prosperity is coming. What trash is that? It's not even biblical. If the world hates you, he says, now that you're my friend, realize you are going to be in trouble. Because the world hated me. And just I want you to know that it all trickles down. It's going to, they're coming after you. He says, I've told you this. This relationship is now changing their life, whether they want it or not. 
So their relationship with Jesus, he is talking about. Their relationship with the Father, their relationship with the Spirit, their relationship with one another. And then he says, because you you are my friends, now this is your relationship with the world. And that's what he goes on and says here. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first, so you're in good company. If you were of the world... The world would love you. Now, just imagine, we just want every, we just, you know, we want a peaceful life. Come on. We want our kids to be happy. We want our kids to fit in. We want our kids to be normal, whatever that means. How can we be normal if we're believers in Christ? We're countercultural. We're completely different. We think differently. We're, we, we live differently. That doesn't mean, you know, because we could look at, you know, religions of the world and Christian sects that aren't really Christian at all. I mean, we could wear hats. We could wear the all same kind of clothes. We could have our hair long. You know, we could have beards. We could have locks. We could have hats. We could have, you know, women could put, you know, stuff on their heads and cover their heads. We could do, we could have all kinds of cultural things that make us different, but that's not what makes us different. What makes us different is our relationship with Jesus. And that's what John was saying in his first John. He goes, realize this. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Now, folks, we are surprised, are we not? In America, which we, I, I have a hard time believing that people are surprised the way America is going. Is America exempt from sin? Is it exempt from ungodliness? It is not. America is going to be burned up with every other nation in the world. It will no longer exist. Its flag will be waving nowhere. And yet we're going, I just can't believe it. I can't believe the way the country's going. I can't. Why can't we believe it? This is not a Christian nation. The Constitution doesn't say that you you need to believe in Jesus. It doesn't say that anywhere. And so we are so surprised, so surprised at the way the world is going when Jesus says, it's going to hell. That includes us. We've been, we've been inoculated and insulated and isolated because of the values that were instituted into the way the nation was built. But that's... that's a. That's superficial. That's not real. And yet we're looking at it in amaze, saying, the country of America is going to hell. We need to get it to back to what? What do we need to get back to? Racism? Do we need to get back to uh, slavery? What do we want to get it back to when it was good? When? For the Christian, it's never going to be good because we're aliens and strangers to this world. So we need to get, we need to get our focus back. I remember telling the people, and I may have said this to you before, when Obama was coming, becoming, uh, going for, uh, running for the first time in, in the election, I never saw more Christians praying and praying and praying that he wouldn't get picked. I said, where is this fervency for prayer when some other president is in place? Where is this fervency for prayer and for the church and for the lost and for truth when your politician wins? Because we are still so focused. We are still told a lie, a a bill of goods that we believe in. And folks, we haven't been persecuted by any stretch of the imagination. So when we find and feel what hate is, then we kind of don't like it. We feel badly that other countries have had it, but please don't let it happen to America. Because we're the church in America. We're different. We live in America. It should be easier for us. Where? Where does it say that in here? Nowhere. And it's true. You know, you can't say anything about a Muslim. You can't say anything about Muhammad. But put put Muhammad in a bottle of urine as an art form like it did years ago. 
And see where, you think anybody has the courage to do that today? No way. You can't say anything, joke anything about them because they're going to come and kill you. But you can say anything about Jesus. You can mock God. You can mock Jesus. You know, it's open seasons on Christians. We understand that. But folks, is it any different for these guys? No different. We shouldn't be surprised. We just have been led a bill of goods. We believed in a lie. Because the relationship of the world to the Christian is hatred. Because it hates Jesus. The world hates Jesus. And America's in the world. And folks, you know, we can get along as long as we don't push Jesus as being the only way. As long as we don't say, eh, it's okay, you know, same-sex marriage, it doesn't, I mean, I don't like it, but as long as it doesn't bother me, as long as it doesn't affect my life, I don't care. Well, it's, <laughs> we have to care. Because it's not from God. It is not godly. But it's not unreal. You don't think the practices of Corinth... The practices of the idol worship, the fertility cults that were going on, put the country to shame to what was going on back then. So if the world hates you, realize that it hates Jesus. And if you and I are followers of Jesus, we are going to be persecuted. And this is what he says, if you were of the world... He says, but because you are not of the world, he says, that, he goes, because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, that's why the world hates you. If you don't like being hated by the world, and the world meaning the secular world, it's not the, the geography, but it's that secular mentality of a godless world, of John Lennon, of imagine there's no heaven, He says, verse 20, he goes, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted you, if they persecuted me, I just want you to know that they persecuted you. Why is he telling him this? Why now? Because of verse, of chapter 16. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus doesn't give a rip about persecution. He is concerned about his flock falling away. That's what he's concerned about. He is not concerned in saying, oh, don't make waves. Don't be persecuted. Make sure you watch your step. No. He says, you can't help but be persecuted. But I'm telling you these things because I want you to understand that what you're getting involved in, and you're not to be surprised by anything that is going to happen to you. I don't want you to be scandalized. That's the word here. Scandalizo. It's the Greek word for being a stumbling block. It is, I don't want you to fall away. Now remember, I mean, Peter, um, excuse me, Paul writes this. You don't write the, I'm going to read these. You don't need to turn to these. But just remember Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but us also suffer for his sake. Paul writes to, Timothy, writes to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 4. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 4. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Peter, remember Peter's letter. He says, Beloved, in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you can share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see how they changed the perspective. Peter heard this room, upper room discourse. Paul learned it. He was told it. 
He understood it. That we are going to be persecuted. That's why Peter says to them, after he's explaining the gospel to them, in chapter 1, verses 1, verses, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, because it is necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is saying these things. Because persecution is common lot for believers. That's why he says in verse, chapter 16, Chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all of these things to you, when we're not just done looking at them, to keep you from falling away. They're going to pull you out of syn- put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming that whenever anybody kills you, they think that they're serving God. And they will do these things because why? Because they don't have the relationship with the Father that you have. You, they don't have a relationship with me like you have. If you cherish my relationship, if you abide in me, if you understand is what John says, and this is love, not because your life is better, not because you have a lot of friends, not because you have prosperity, not because you never get sick, not because your children are wonderful, not because of anything else, it's because he gave his life to die as a propitiation of your sins. That's love. And that's the gospel. And it, in one concise statement, you add anything to it, you're a liar. You're a deceiver. And that's what John was writing to them. You heard how many, how many times did he use the word liar? In the spirit of Antichrist. And we need to be cautious That the church is not propagating lies to people, thinking that that's the gospel. We need to warn people that it is not the gospel. So he says, back in chapter 15, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And he goes on and says this again. If I had not done among them the works no one did else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Where is he coming from? Turn with me. We're right in Gospel of John. Chapter 3. Verse 19. Jesus is, we all know for God so loved the world, but then he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. He is the judging factor. He is the light that puts light wherever darkness is. And he says, you can't hide from it. I'm shedding light. I am the light. And I, as The writer of Hebrews says about the word of God, what does it do? It exposes the very hearts, the very thoughts of every human being. Nothing, nothing gets away from its light. For everyone, verse 20, who does wicked thing hates Jesus, hates the Father, and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. Why do they hate Jesus? Because their work is being exposed. Their words are being exposed. They're being exposed for who they are. Do pe- I love God, people will tell me. I love who Jesus is. I love who God is. But they don't love the gospel. Because what does the gospel teach? The gospel tells them that they are despicably evil and are deserving of wrath and are going to hell unless someone changes them. Someone gives them hope. Do you want me to tell you how despicably evil you are? I don't want to be around you. You don't want to be around me, I mean. You don't want to be around somebody who is talking about sin. Who talks about, who talks about that God is angry with sin. 
regardless, they'll take the love of God, they'll take that God died for their sins, but don't tell them that they can't earn their salvation because it takes them out of the equation. People in America want to work hard because they want, they deserve it, and they get rewarded for hard work, and it happens in theology the same way. It is works righteousness. And for you to tell me that my life and how hard I've lived my life to do good means nothing to God, and in fact is going to be used against me, I hate that. Why would I love it? You just totally wiped out my whole meaning of life. And that's why the world hates you and me, because they hate the gospel. And that's why Jesus is telling them that in the upper room. He is saying, now they know what sin is. Now they know that their works are evil. Why? Because I've come and I've exposed them. <laughs> go to chapter 7. Just to go back and refer back to where we were before. Chapter 7 of John's Gospel, verse 7. As he says, the world cannot hate you. Why? Because right at the point, they, they're understanding, they're not them as people, as, but he hates, they don't hate common things, because that's who they are, but they hate heavenly things, they hate supernatural things, but it hates me, because I am the one, I am the light of the world. You and I are not the light of the world, but Jesus is. And he says here, they hate me because I testify that their works are evil. That is not good news. It's bad news. And what's the gospel? Good news. And to have good news, you've got to have bad news. So do you fill churches with bad news or good news? And the answer is, you've got to tell them the bad news before you can give them the good news because the good news attracts everybody and they don't need any. Why do I need to worry? I'll just give you the good stuff, Pastor. That's all I want. Life is tough enough. I've got enough problems in life. Don't tell me about the bad news. And that's what he says here in, in verse 3 of chapter 16. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father. The relationship now, the relationship now is, is a whole new relationship that we have. But when the helper comes in verse 26, the advocate, the comforter, remember we talked about that briefly last time? He talks about the comforter. It's not one who gives you a nummy. He's not one that gives you a blanket. He's not one that gives you a pacifier or a stuffed teddy bear. But the results of having somebody like Jesus does give you warm and fuzzies, does give you some comfort, does give you some place of solace, some peace. I don't want to negate that at all because I need it all the time. But the one who comforts is one who comes with power. An advocate is one who stands next to you. A paraclete is one who is called out. Para, meaning coming alongside. And kaleo means one who is calling out. The paraclete comes along and stands next to you. And what you need and I need, we need an advocate. Because when we didn't have, as I talked about before, you know, Cutler and Cutler, they, there, weren't, there weren't, you know, People with uh, signs under where, you know, Jacob and Jacob, or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, Simon and Simon, you know, law firm. They can go and knock a door. I need, I need an advocate. What they did is they found somebody. They went to the gate where the elders were. And when they were accused of something, who do you go to? You go to somebody who knows you best. And somebody who understands who you are, who then is an advocate for you. And that's who God, he says, I know who you are. You're my friends. And now you're my friends. And what are you going to do? He says here, he says, when the helper comes, in verse 26, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, notice there's no lie there. He can't help but tell the truth. And we are not supposed to do anything but tell, but tell the truth. Who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Who knows me better than you, he says. You've been with me from the very beginning. You've been at my baptism. You've been everywhere with me for the last three years. You know the entire story. Who knows you better than someone who has spent 
three years with you every day. That's why you get a neighbor that knows you or a friend or somebody you work with as an advocate to say, Jim, is, it's not possible that Jim could do this. I've known him. They come up with people who are witnesses of your character. And now he says, you're going to be my witness because you've been with me from the very beginning. You know the entire story. As Remember John said that in 1 John? Remember he says, you've heard it from the beginning. I've told you from the beginning. You understand the story from the beginning. You know the beginning of the book to the end of the book. You know where sin came in the world. You know that God being a creator. And you know that sin is here. And we know we need redemption. And we know we have a savior. That's you know the story. He says, so you can testify. As we read in Acts chapter 1, he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And then what are you going to be? You're going to be my witnesses. Remember, this entire book is about Jesus being on trial. And you know what happens? We're on trial now, too. Because why? Not because of us, but because we're friends of Jesus. You're a friend of Jesus? You're like Jesus? I don't know if I like you. I don't think I care for you at all. I don't like what you stand for. You tell people you're Christians, wow! Stuck with a label right on your head, aren't you? You're one of those? You don't believe in that, do you? You don't believe in this, do you? You don't do that. You don't believe in this, do you? It doesn't make any difference. You're not going to stop me to believing this. You're not going to stop me from doing that, are you? You're going to let me be the way I want to live, right? You're not going to judge me and condemn me, right? But if you're one of them, I don't think I like you anymore. You've been told that? I have. Sometimes I'm sure it's my personality drinking a taking a drink out of a fire hose sometimes I'm sure I'm like that being an Italian I can't help myself that's not true uh, but most of the time when you tell people that you believe in the Bible and that you believe that Jesus is the only way unless God is working Unless the Holy Spirit is changing people's lives, unless the Holy Spirit is calling someone to themselves, unless there's regeneration and, someone in, and the Holy Spirit is calling people from the dead to life, you telling somebody that you're a believer doesn't win you friendships at all. Now, it's not to say that you can't be friends as we talked about as I said, that book of that David came to this church, who's a professor at UPenn, his, one of his best friends is an atheist. It's not to say that we don't have great relations, and I, and I would exhort you to have relationship with unbelievers. Because that's how we are the light. We need to go into the dark places. That's how we are the salt. We need to get rubbed into the meat. We need to get to places. We can't expect people to come here. We've got to go out there where they are. And so, Jesus is telling these men, this is the reality of who you are. You're my friends. Oh, geez, I'm so thankful you're my friend, that you're my friend. But let me tell you what my friendship means, that the world's going to hate you, and you're going to be killed, and you're going to be persecuted. But don't let that deter your faith. I don't want you to fall away. You're going to die. You're going to be killed. You're going to be skinned alive. You're going to be tortured. You're going to be ostracized. Your family's going to not want to be around you anymore. You're going to think you're a weirdo. You're not going to be invited to family get-togethers. Because you're a weird guy, Jim. And I don't like hanging around you. Exactly their same comment. <laughs> it's the truth. You walk into a room and it's like you're Moses parting the sea. Everything changes. What a great influence. I never knew I had that much power. But it's sad. Because it's spiritual warfare. And that's why Paul writes to them, you better have the sword of truth. You better have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of faith. You better have the, sh the feet that are shy of peace so that you don't fall. It's warfare. And that's why Peter tells them, he says, I want you to be sober-minded. I want you to be prepared because, dear your children of my flock, you're going to be persecuted for your faith. And yes, even here in America. And so he says, I want you to be sure that you know the truth. Do you believe in the truth? This is what this is all about, that we 
are not worthy. Only he is worthy. Only he is the righteous one. Only one, he is the one who could propitiate anything, who could turn away God's wrath or satisfy God's demands. That's what this is, a sign and seal all about. And what he does is by the breaking of bread in the midst of the disciples who were clueless what was going on, is that this is how he shows that he not only abides in me and you, but how we are kindred of spirit because we are the body of Christ. And we share in his body. He is our nourishment. He is our source of strength. He is the one who feeds us. He feeds our soul. So that's why sacraments are so important, because they're a means of grace. In and themselves, it doesn't mean anything. If it did, then Judas's washing of his feet would have had a different experience. Would it have not? If people want to make foot washing a sacrament, then we would be like people who believe that by taking of sacraments makes us in like Flint, which is a problem called federal vision, which is a problem in the PCA, which is a problem in Presbyterianism, that people embrace the sacraments thinking that because they eat and drink, because they're baptized, that somehow, though in very, very Good reasons why, because people are leaving the church, people are not flocking to the church, people are not finding a, a, a commitment to the church. They are using ways of telling people that, you know, that because you have these sacraments, that you, you're a child of God. And that's not true. This in itself does not save you or me. But by having our eyes changed, by giving us the vision to be able to see that this is the body of Christ. And what does the body of Christ stand for? His giving his life, his breaking of his body, of dying on a cross. And then also, in a negative, positive way, of giving himself to us so that we may have fellowship with one another, as he is saying, love one another. And then he sheds his blood as he is a sacrifice that does cover our sins and to satisfy God's wrath so that God's wrath would never, ever visit us again. That's why it's so important to eat and drink in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So, does it make a difference to you that people come to know Christ. You and I don't change anybody. But do, do, do we care about being a part of the process or being an instrument that God is going to use? And God promises to use. You are going to be my witnesses. Does it make a difference? Do you pray for opportunities? That the Holy Spirit opens the door up to be able to say, wow, I know who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And it's a wonderful experience, if you've never had, of ever leading anybody to Christ, to watch their eyeballs light up. To watch their life change miraculously in front of you. Now, it doesn't always happen immediately. Sometimes it happens down the road. But to be part of that process, to be able to be an instrument of God's grace, to be able to be a witness that someone actually listened to your testimony about who Jesus is. I think that's absolutely <laughs> supernaturally wonderful. So I pray that that is something that you pray for, that God opens up opportunities for you to be a witness and you're not doing it alone. Who's the witness? The Holy Spirit. I'm sending the, wit I'm spending the, the witness. I'm spending the comforter. I'm sending the advocate. He is not, you're not alone. He's going to cause you to remember the things that I've talked to you about. The things that I've taught you about. The things that other pre pastors have taught you about. Other people have taught you about. That's key. We want to understand. We want to make sure that when we're put on the stand, that we are telling people the truth about who the object of our testimony is and not telling them what they want to hear. So, let's pray as we prepare our hearts for this great sacrament. Lord, I praise and thank you for, for the word that you've given us today. That, Father, that you are 
You have equipped us. You've given us a heart, as we spoke of last week. The demands of the gospel are heavy upon us, but yet, Lord, your covenant, the new covenant that you've promised in the Old Testament that we are now participants in and recipients of, you now give us a desire, a desire to say yes, a desire to be obedient, a desire to love one another, a desire to love even our enemies, a desire, Lord, to even to see in our persecution, which we're not always good at it, but even, Lord, even in our times of trouble, in those fiery trials that you brought upon us, we see that there is a purpose to that. Even as we cry, even as we sob, even as we find ourselves complaining and scratching and wondering what's going on, we know deep down in our hearts that you are in control. And Lord, that changes everything for us. So Lord, I pray that those who are here today are comforted by these words. That these things, if we love you, are going to happen to us by virtue of our love for you. And by our virtue of telling others about that kind of love, that not that we have for you, but that kind of love that you have for us. Father, I pray that you open up doors, that we don't kick them down, that we don't pry them open, that we don't blow them open, Lord, but that the Holy Spirit opens up opportunities for us to witness. And whether that they come to know you or whether their hearts are hardened even more, that's not our work. That's your work. So let us rest in your ability to do your work. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in the hymnal as we prepare again as for this meal that we read the shorter catechism. And there's questions number 29 and through 36 found on page 871 in the back of the hymnal. Starting with 29. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? How doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? And what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us What benefits do, do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardoned all our sins and accepted us as His righteousness in His life, only for the righteousness of Christ to be to us and received by faith alone. And what is adoption? Adoption. 